everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I research something that I find very interesting and want to learn more about, and then I tell you guys all the most interesting bits. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So, today is a continuation of our series on comparative mythology. Not that you would have needed to listen to the other two to listen to this episode. It's just... You know, another theme of myth I want to talk about. Standalone, not like a sequel or prequel in this case. Correct. So yeah, if you're interested, the other ones we did are fire mythology and dragons it's true. across cultures. So today what we're going to focus on is flood myths, uh, comparing them across time and cultures and such. Space. Time and um, space. I know. I, was, if I, I actually thought about saying time and space, and then I thought people might think I was talking about, like, outer space. Maybe. And I don't know what other alien civilizations might um, I'm sure think they have flood myths. Flood, flood myths. So yeah. uh, I couldn't really weigh in to that part. Okay, fine. <laughs> All right, well, uh, teach me something. Awesome. So this may go without saying, um, but a flood myth is also called a deluge myth. Right. Uh, it's a myth where a great flood, usually sent by deity or deities, destroys civilization. And it's often an act of divine retribution, you know, punishment of some sort. Right. Um, many cultures use flood myths as part of their creation stories. Okay. Um, as you'll see later. So to go off on a bit of a tangent about that here, creation has uh, long been associated with water. Many creation myths describe a primeval or primordial water. Um, so, in the beginning, there was nothing but water is a very popular concept in a lot of creation myths. Okay. For example, Genesis in the Bible says, In the beginning, when God created the universe, the earth was formless and desolate. The raging ocean that covered everything was engulfed in total darkness, and the Spirit of God was moving over the water. So you'll notice that the ocean is the first thing that was there, according to... Right. Uh, the Old Testament. Um, and so there's a, there's a way that anthropologists classify myths, and they actually have this, like, alphanumeric code, A0801, are earth diver myths and whatever. Like, oh, really? Kind of thing like that. Yeah. Okay. So there's, like, subsets of other myths and whatever. So um, primeval water myths are a category, and as a subset of them, there's, like I was saying, earth diver myths which generally includes a raft or something in the primeval sea from which the creator sends animals down to try to bring up Earth. And okay. after animals fail one after the other, one animal will succeed, and that's often the muskrat, funnily enough. Really? Yeah. Um, and then that's the soil that creates all the land on Earth. Mm-hmm. So um, it's kind of a crossover between creation and floods, and you'll see a few, one maybe, one or more examples of that a little bit later on in the episode. Um, so floodwaters also tend to be described as a way of cleansing humanity in fresh, like preparation for a rebirth, maybe like maybe there was already humans and then everything's going to get wiped out. Right. And then, Clean slate. And then the people person that survives is going to become the new, you know, ancestor of, of the new races of that area sure. in the world. Um, most flood myths also have this cultural hero who... Like, you know, Noah would be your, you know, the one person that is righteous or deserves to to live or something. And some myths specify that, that they deserve to live for a reason. And some myths, it's just like, hey, the, the yeah. God said that this kid's going to survive. 
for no real good reason. Um, so the flood myth motif occurs in most cultures, many, many, many cultures. But there are also cultures, of course, where we don't see flood myths. Or if we do, it's not like a devastating flood happens. Um, so the theory is that in places that saw flooding as more beneficial, like in ancient Egypt, they didn't create stories like this because, um, like, for example, the Nile has cyclical flooding. Right. And it was necessary for the crop fertility. And they didn't have, um, like, other rivers every once in a while, you know, maybe it cyclically floods, but then every once in a while there's a huge destructive flood and destroys everything and people are devastated. But the Nile didn't tend to do that. So they didn't make those types of myths. Um, so in general, in Africa, flood myths are very, very rare. Okay. Um, so the question is, why might we see so many flood myths throughout history? Um, and I, I believe it's similar to the myths about fire. It's, uh, you know, a devastating natural force and ancient humans have no ability really to control it or almost no ability. There was definitely examples in ancient right. China, for example, of trying to engineer solutions to river flooding. But, um, well, I mean, it, let's face it, to this day, we're still not that great at mitigating gonna, flood risk. So even now it's devastating. You know, you go back in time in, in technology yeah. and all you're going to get is, is it being more and more and more devastating. Right. Especially when it's caused by things like sudden storms, like hurricanes yeah. and tsunami, as opposed to something we know, floodplains that flood every sure. however many years. And Where like I said, kind we're of, still not good at that. Well, but in those cases, you can at least gain cultural knowledge over time and, and prediction and that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, so another thing to think about is where humans tended to build our settlements. Yeah, near water. Uh, right. So after the widespread adoption of agriculture around 10,000 years ago, humans, of course, begin to leave behind the nomadic lifestyle and start to settle down. And the best place for this to occur was along uh, a navigable river system. Yeah. Right? So you would have flowing fresh water, which was good, right? You didn't want to be by a lake. That's, I mean, lakes are okay, but like, you know, that's more stale water, right? A river yeah. has flowing fresh water that's clean. You can drink, you can wash. And you can travel. Yeah. Um, so, of course, when you're living all along water systems, then you're going to encounter a lot of flooding and majorly impacted humanity. And without science, people, of course, turn to religion to try to sure. attempt to explain what was happening around them. Um, so what evidence is there of historical flooding? Like, we, we obviously, of course floods happened. We don't really need evidence to know that floods must have happened in the past, right? <laughs> right. Um, but what evidence do we have? Like, what kind of evidence is there? I'm going to just call something out right now, which is it's very hard to search this and not find creationists and Bible literists trying to justify the story of Noah's Ark being true. If you try to search historical evidence for flood, like, man, you're just going to get and, like, so many of these websites are hidden creationist websites. Like, they'll start trying to talk about science, and I'm going to put it in quotations, science. And then you realize that they're, like, what they're really after. Or, I mean, even when you're searching certain mythologies, it's definitely like, oh, this must have been because they heard through the Lord about Noah. So then they made this myth, and I'm like, that's not. That yeah. Doesn't, nope. <laughs> doesn't um, compute. So, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt, because I'm pretty sure I didn't find it any of those sites, but man, it was a tough one. <laughs> so let's talk about Atlantis. Okay. But not much because 
that might have to be a whole other <laughs> okay. thing. Just in general, Plato. So Plato was the one to bring up Atlantis, yes? And okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So he's as an allegory. Okay. And he talked about it being 9,000 years before his time. Okay. And some scholars think that that was because it was referencing a real thing that happened to Estonian society near the Mediterranean is that, you know, a rising sea level and wiped out a civilization. Okay. Um, that is more speculatory than some of the other evidence we have. That's not really evidence, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Um, Mesopotamia, like other early river civilizations, um, was very flood prone. And they have large valleys and large valley-wide flooding probably periodically erased almost their entire known world, which is most likely why we're going to see probably the earliest flood myth come out of Mesopotamia. We'll talk about that in a second. Kind of makes sense, yeah. So the reasons we know about floods are basically geologists being able to see these layers of sand and silt deposit around river systems um, so they can look at those layers and understand when the periodic flooding might have happened. Um, Earth's sea level rose quite dramatically um, in the millennia after the last glacial maximum level is what it's called. So we know that the geography of the Mesopotamian area did change considerably when the Persian Gulf was filled in by rising seawaters. So global sea levels were about 120 meters lower around 18,000 years ago. Sorry, how many? Around 18,000 years ago, yeah. the sea levels globally were about 120 meters 120 lower. 120 meters. Yeah, so wow. 390 feet if you okay. if you're imperial. And so then over the 10,000 years after that, they reached current levels. So they kind of rose steadily. Mm-hmm. And then 8,000 years ago we hit kind of our current sea level. Okay. So, um, which, by the way, sea levels are now an average of 40 meters above the, like, bottom of the Persian Gulf. Okay. Um, the Persian Gulf, by the way, is huge. It's 800 kilometers by 200 kilometers. When it didn't have water in it, it was, we think, you know, a very fertile region. Sure. Cultures would have, um strongly inhabited for a hundred thousand years probably they think you know a big oasis yeah so then when sea levels flood like rose Rose. yeah and if you're thinking your whole known universe is this 800 kilometer by 200 kilometer which especially at that time very reasonable because why would you need to go anywhere because you can grow everything that you need right there right yeah and then the whole thing floods then we can see how maybe there was uh stories and mythology spawn uh, from that catastrophic event right right um so scientists have also found evidence of catastrophic flooding in china about four thousand years ago in the upper yellow river valley um, maybe around uh, 1920 BCE is when they think it happened. So here's what the archaeologists and geologists studying the region have kind of put together is that there was a landslide caused by an earthquake. And that made a big, like, huge natural dam across the Yellow River um, about where it travels through the Jishi Gorge. Sure. Okay. So where the river emerges from the Tibetan Plateau. 
Um, so the dam they think would have risen about 800 feet above the river's present level. Like it would have caused that much. Yeah. Um, water rising retention. Um, so for between six and nine months, somewhere between there, the rivers just stopped flowing. Um, as the water accumulated behind the dam into like a, basically a lake. And then finally it got to the, the breaking point and crested the dam and the dam gave way and released 3.8 cubic miles of water. So I went and looked this one up. I was going to say, that's a unit of measure I haven't really heard. I don't think I have heard it before. I have never or if heard I have, it. it's So I tried to convert it to, to liters. Okay. Thinking that that liters is going to help, help me imagine it. Yeah, sure. It. Okay. 15 trillion, 839 billion, um, 91 million, 3,622 liters of water. Yeah, I mean, the moment you go over, you know, let's call it 3 trillion, I have a hard time imagining it, so. All right, but 3 trillion is Oh, yeah, I can easily picture 3 trillion. No big deal. Okay, so lots, lots and lots of liters. Yeah, they think it was one of the largest floods in the last 10,000 years. Um, the flood wave that burst from the dam probably traveled uh, like 2,000 kilometers downstream. Okay. Broke the, you know, river's natural banks and even, they think, made the river switch course. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, that actually kind of coincides with one version of a Chinese flood myth, but it's not the version we're going to talk about. Oh. Um, it's about Emperor Yao, if you want to look into the Emperor Yao. But that one's maybe more based on historical fact and a little a little bit less supernatural. It's like actually about emperors and who gets to rule based on how well you control flooding. That's not oh. the kind of Chinese flood myth we're going to talk about because there's so many and I had to pick one. Fine. Yeah. So another historical piece of evidence we kind of have, kind of, in uh, around... And I say around, but it's pretty precise. 1646 BCE. It's pretty precise. Yeah. I mean, can you at least tell me the month and day? But I don't know the the evidence for it being that exact year. I'm, I'm not sure. 100% sure. So around that time, there was a massive volcanic eruption, uh, probably one of the largest ever witnessed by humanity. Took place, which is an island called Thera, which is the present day island of Santorini. Okay. In Greece. Yeah. Um, so it's in the Aegean Sea, not far from Crete. Anyway, so there is a huge volcanic eruption there. The explosion was estimated to be about, like, the equivalent of 40 atomic bombs. Holy cow. About, like, 100 times more powerful than Pompeii. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So th- there is speculation that this caused a tsunami. Sure. Right? Um, and that a huge tsunami then hit the South Aegean Sea and, and Crete. And that would cause massive sudden flooding. And, you know, that could have possibly inspired the Greek, Greco-Roman type of flood myths. Mm-hmm. Um, as you'll see, they have a they have a f- pretty prominent flood myth in ancient Greek. Well, Greece, Greek and Roman mythology. I was going to say, those kind of roll thing. together, sure. Um, and then there's some historians that think that um, global flood stories were also inspired by... Like the ancients seeing things like fish fossils and seashells on mountaintops and high areas where ancient people didn't know about plate tectonics. So they would have thought, yeah, the- how would these sea creatures? I mean, I don't want to pick more on the 
creationist movement, but I will because a lot of the Bible literalists still use that as an example that there must have been flooding because we find, you know, water type fossils on mountaintops. So there must have been a global flood. Yeah. Instead of those things coming up from the seafloor being pushed up, well, yeah, the water level know, must have been up Now there. we know about plate tectonics and we have yeah. the scientific evidence to back that up. Yes, we do, creationists. Um, and so, I don't know, when you're an ancient human, though, and you totally. see a fish fossil on top of a mountain, you're like, uh... It didn't fly up there. The, that's a, a f- giant flood is as good of a theory as any other. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the actual stories. As let's do I it. said, the Mesopotamian Babylonian um, flood mythology is probably one of the oldest... If not, you know, the earliest written flood mythology that we have. Written makes a, makes a big difference, right? It totally. really helps. <laughs> totally. So, and that takes place, that comes to us from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which That's you have probably do. heard of. I mean, it was very influential. Very. Written down. Uh, yes. <laughs> written down, and we translated it, which we can't always do. So, right. yeah. Um, so, if you're unaware of this story, Gilgamesh is the name of a legendary warrior king. Um, based on the fifth king of the first dynasty of the Mesopotamian capital of Uruk. Uh, so that's sometime between 2700 and 2500 BCE. Don't really know if he's real, but he was the hero of the first recorded epic adventure tale, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, and it eventually was told all over the ancient world from Egypt to Turkey and, you know, Mediterranean area, Arabic areas. So it was very widespread. Um, the earliest surviving documents referring to Gilgamesh are the cuneiform tablets found in Mesopotamia, and we think they were made between 2100 and 1800 BCE, uh, written in Sumerian, and they describe different events in Gilgamesh's life, and it later was turned into, like, a narrative story. Right. So, in the most common form of the story, Gilgamesh is a prince, um, son of King Lugalbanda, or maybe of a renegade prince, and a goddess called Ninsum. Um, and he was, you know, kind of a quite wild youth. And then throughout the story, he has his heroic quest for fame and immortality, and he becomes, you know, a good friend, and he learns a lot, and, like, it's a pretty, you know, wonderful type of transformation story. He matures, he experiences joys and sorrows, all that good stuff. So in one of his quests, Gilgamesh meets a man named Utnap-Ishtim, who tells him the story of a great flood. Okay. And basically what happened was some of the gods decided to send a flood to destroy humanity. However, the god of wisdom and water warns Utnapishtim of the flood and tells him to build a ship for himself and for his family. And the ship was supposed to be loaded up with various possessions and plants and animals of every kind. Mm, okay. I mean, yeah, it's familiar, but a lot of them are going to go this way. Sure. So after Utnapishtim completes the ship, it begins to rain. The rain continues for seven days and completely floods the earth. Okay. When the rain stops, the ship is grounded on a mountaintop, which is also a very common thing, is the mountaintop. Yes. Yeah. Still surrounded by water, though. Sure. Several days pass. Um, and on the seventh day, Utnapishtim sends a dove to search for dry land. The dove comes back exhausted, so it found no place to rest. Then he sends a swallow 
but it returns as well exhausted. Is that because a swallow could go further than a dove in a day type of idea? I have no I'm, I'm knowledge. Gonna get, I'm going to go with that. Okay, you continue. There is always a random order of birds. I'm not sure it means anything. Um, on the ninth day, Utnapishtim sends a raven, and the raven doesn't come back. Hmm. So he thinks, all right, must have found some land. Not, yeah, okay. <laughs> not it drowned? Yeah, fine, keep going. So he releases all the animals and then sacrifices some of them to the gods. That's another common theme. They make a sacrifice to the gods after they get out of their boat or whatever. Um, the god Enlil is furious. Anyone escapes the floods. But that god of wisdom that originally warned Utnapishtim, him, he, he defended him and, and calmed Enlil down. And uh, Enlil finally decides, okay, I am impressed by these this guy, and I am going to make him and his wife immortal. Okay. He words them with immortality, and they become the ancestors of a new human race. Got it. You didn't yeah. mention that that was going to be uh, a theme that as well. That is a common theme. So, um, on that extremely Noah's Ark y uh, note, let's talk about Noah's Ark. Okay. Yeah. Good segue. Yeah. So, Genesis yes. is the uh, book of the Bible in the Old Testament. In which this story takes place. It's also a, a decent video game platform for its time. But you can keep going. <laughs> okay. I will. So God uh, is upset at mankind for being very wicked. And is going to destroy mankind. And Noah Noah is righteous. And sure. God, God thinks he should survive. So God tells Noah to build an ark. Specifically, 450 by 75 by 45 feet with three decks. Mm -hmm. It's funny because there's a lot of versions of this story. And you wouldn't think that because it's the Bible. But the Bible has so many versions and yeah. translations. So I'm just going to go with a generalized version. Kind of pieced together. And we'll actually talk about what that might mean at the, at the end here. But Noah builds the ark, takes his family with him. So him and his wife, his three sons and their wives. So eight people on this ark. And pairs of all kinds of animals. But then the next verse is it tells him to bring seven pairs of all the clean animals. Oh. They never tell you about that, do they? We no, actually read the Bible. They, there's a lot of contradictions in this story where it says one thing in one verse and then another thing in another verse. Okay. There might be a reason for that. Anyways, when this flood happened, Noah was, well, again, the difference between the versions, but 600 years, two months, and 17 days old. Mm -hmm. Pretty young. One version says. Pretty specific is my, my thought. Very yeah. specific. So for 40 days and nights, floodwaters come from the heavens and from the deeps uh, until the highest mountains are covered. Mm -hmm. The more Hebrew... Um, Sacred texts say that it was male male waters from the sky, meaning the female waters from the ground. Okay. Uniting to cause the flood. Um, so the f waters flood the earth for 150 days, which, again, is a contradiction to other stories. Yeah. Like, um, I thought you said 40 days and 40 nights a second well, ago. That it, that it rained. rained. Maybe. It. That's the thing. Maybe. It doesn't specify. So some things say 40 days. Some things say, you know, 150. Sure. Some things. Anyways, there's a lot of contradiction. Um then God sends a wind and the waters recede and the ark comes to rest on top of Mount Ararat. Right. After 40 days, Noah sends out a raven, which keeps flying until the waters have dried up. 
Hmm. He starts with a raven. Anyways, next he sends out a dove, which returned without finding anywhere to perch. A week later, he sends out the dove again, and it returns with an olive branch or olive leaf. Okay. The next week, the dove doesn't return. Hmm. That dove. <laughs> so, again, the version's here, but after maybe a year and ten days from the start of the flood, everyone and everything emerges from the ark. Noah sacrifices some of the clean animals and birds to God. And God is pleased with this and promises never again to destroy everything on earth and sends a rainbow as a sign of the covenant. Okay. Um, animals become wild. No one is family or told to repopulate the earth. Sure. They become the founders of a new race, basically. Well. Not necessarily new, but well, of that area. Some very messed up stuff happens now with Noah's sons. Hmm. You might know about this story. Um, Noah plants a vineyard. Gets really drunk, and then he passes out naked. And then one of his sons, Ham, saw him lying naked. Yeah. And comes out and tells his brothers Shem and Japheth about what he saw. The brothers go and cover up Noah, and then when Noah wakes up, he curses Ham and his descendants to be slaves forevermore, and uh, blesses his other sons. Basically, curses Ham's descendants to be slaves to his other kids descendants i had heard this before yes and it's uh the source of a lot of shall we say evangelical racism yeah since ham is sometimes described as being black and unclean anyways which is ridiculous seeing as how many different versions of things there are and it's just real weird that noah passes out and gets drunk and is naked and that's somehow someone else's fault uh yes yeah so, I don't understand how that's the one part to take literally, but, but, some scholars think all these contradictions came about because this was actually two ancient myths that the Hebrew peoples had. Okay. And by the time things were written down, because, you know, like, it was all oral tradition, right? Yeah. So by the time things were written down, they kind of, like, edited them into one myth or combined them into one. So that's why there are, like, there's one narrative, but different details okay yeah um oh and then noah lives for 350 more years so he is 950 years old when he dies okay i mean he, he did okay then yeah um and it shouldn't surprise you to hear that the islamic flood myth uh, i'm not going to tell it because it's very very similar to this also also featuring a hero named noah hmm. shouldn't surprise you since not hebrew really and yeah islam have the same roots yeah so I know I said Africa has relatively few flood myths, uh, so I just found one. Okay. From Let's the, do it. From the Maasai people that lived in, well, still live in East Africa. So the world was heavily populated, and people are sinful, hmm. and they're not mindful of God. You know, hmm. very common starting place here. However, they refrained from murder until, at last, a man named Nabia hit another man named Swayji on the head. Which is when God resolves to destroy all of mankind. Okay. Yeah, they ruined it for everyone. So except for Tumbenot, who was a righteous man. So God commands Tumbenot to build an ark of wood and enter it with his two wives, his six sons and their wives, and some animals of every sort. Hmm. When they're all aboard, then God makes the rain come, causes the flood, everyone drowns. The ark is drifting and provisions start to run low. The rain finally stops and Tumbe not lets a dove out. Oh. Yeah. 
He started with the dove. Yeah, he Fine. starts with the dove. The dove returns tired, so no place to rest. And then he goes with a vulture. It's a bigger bird. Yeah, but Fine. first he attaches an arrow to one of the vulture's tail feathers so that he would know if the bird lands. Because the theory is if the bird landed, the arrow would hook onto something and come off his tail. Okay. Yeah, so if he returns without I mean, the arrow. Sure. Decent enough theory. Right. So the vulture returns without the arrow. So Toubay not thinks, okay, it must have landed on some carry-on because what else would a vulture land on? Uh, you, a tree? I, no. I mean, uh, <laughs> sure. Yes. So the flood must be receding. So they all got out of the ark. And then Toubay not saw four rainbows, one in each quarter of the sky, signifying God's wrath was over. Okay. So, yeah, rainbows some parallels are very, there. very common. Yeah. Birds and rainbows and mountains and... Definitely, definitely birds. Yeah. And arcs. Arcs, yeah. I mean, I think that's just like the word for a big boat back then, so I'm not really surprised, but... Okay, I mean, but still, <laughs> there's a lot of parallels. Yeah, Noah is not a unique story. If anyone was <laughs> under that delusion, you can, right. you can toss that one out now. We're going to talk about the Greco-Roman myth okay. of Deucalion and Pyrrha. You mean Noah? Um, <laughs> this one has a lot more fun stuff going on. Oh, this on, one deviates a little bit from the last few. It's not okay. as racist. Well, that's good. Yeah, so this all starts while the Titan Prometheus is still bound and chained atop Mount Caucasus for stealing fire from the Yeah, gods. okay. Um, people start being real wicked is, is the thing. So after man was created to rule the world, four ages then follow. This is how Greek mythology goes. Okay. The age of gold was a time of trust and moral goodness and fruitfulness. And the age of silver, people had to start working for a living. In the age of bronze, the first wars started to happen, but there was still morality a little bit. All right. And then in the age of iron, nothing is sacred. Even family ties lead to bloodshed is how, is how they put it. Greed, anger, jealousy, and hate existed among the people because Pandora had now opened the forbidden box from all the evils, you know, yep. escaped. So, so things were real bad. And the gods were angry at the humans. Not necessarily because of all those bad behaviors and things. Because they would forget to pray and sacrifice things. So mm -hmm. the gods are mad. So this is why Zeus decides to destroy all humankind. But in a lot of versions, like Ovid's version. So Ovid was a Roman uh, order, by the way. So this is about 8 CE when he wrote this. Okay. Um, the gods, are, they're, they're going to maybe give humans a chance. I'm going to go check out humanity first before the destruction. Before they just, like, do the IT reboot, turn yeah, off and on exactly. again. Yeah, exactly. One more, well, one last chance, really. Okay. And let's just clarify here that because this is Ovid's version, I'm going to be switching to the Roman god names. Makes sense, yeah. So Jupiter, okay. a.k.a. Zeus. Um, he, yeah, wants to find out the truth for himself, and he goes and visits the house of Lycaon. And he is welcomed in the town by all the devout peoples, and... Lycaon prepares a feast, but Lycaon's a doubter. He, mm -hmm. unlike the rest of the town, was like, I'm not really sure Jupiter's a god, or maybe he's a god, but he's not that powerful, or not that omniscient. I don't know. So, depending on the version you read, he's going to test Jupiter by, I mean, the common ways you test, trying to serve him human flesh to eat and trying to murder him in his sleep. Mm, that's common, how I would do it, too. The common tests, right? Yeah. Um, in some in some versions, it's Lycan's own son that he tries to serve Jupiter. In some, it's like a prisoner 
he cooks up. Some it's just like some entrails of someone. Anyways, yeah. So Jupiter's not happy. Yeah, probably wouldn't make me happy either. Then sends a thunderbolt down to destroy Lycan's house. Not shockingly, if you know Greek, he turns Lycan into a wolf. I'm, I was going to say ask? there's some uh, similarities between the, his name and, you know, a certain wolf-like animal. Right. So, fun fact. Canis lupus Lycaon. So, Canis lupus is wolf. Okay. Lycaon being the subspecies. Okay. Is the timber wolf. Cool. And Lycaon is also the genus name of wild dog. And they only have one extant member in that genus, which is the African wild dog or painted dog, Lycaon pictus. They're really cute. I love those dogs. Anyways, Jupiter tells the other gods, Lycaon was, you know, a representation of everything wrong with humanity. So now we're going to go ahead with the destroy the whole earth plan. And just as everything, we got to find the righteous people that get to survive the flood. Of course. So they picked Deucalion, who was the son of Prometheus. Oh. And Pyrrha, who was the daughter of Epimetheus. I don't think I recognize that. I mean, I probably should. So Prometheus means forethought. Yeah. And Epimetheus means afterthought. afterthought. Yeah. They are brothers. Okay. So Deucalion is married to his cousin. Cousin oh. wife is how they put him. His cousin wife. One, wonderful. Deucalion and his cousin wife, Pyrrha, are going to survive the flood because they are righteous. Because apparently incest is righteous. It's fine. It is. Sure. First cousins. Anyways... Prometheus tells Deucalion what's going to happen. They build an ark. Jupiter invokes the floodwaters, opens the sky and the sea together. Water covers the entire earth. Everything dies. When Jupiter sees everything is good and dead, he sends the north wind to scatter all the clouds, calms the waters. The boat comes to land on top of Mount Parnassus, as these boats always do. But did they send a dub first? No, there's no there's no birds in this one. Well, then how did they find out that the flood was over? I think they just looked out of the boat and there was no water. I don't know why other people didn't try that. Yeah. So. Hmm. Innovative. Yeah. So, by the way, Mount Parnassus was close to Delphi. Just just so you know. Okay. Um, They're really devastated, though, Deucalion and Pyrrha, by the fact that everything died. Sure. So then they cry. Uh-oh. And... <laughs> Apparently that's important because all this crying means that Hermes slash Mercury in the Roman is going to come help them out. He comes mm. down. He's like, don't cry. You just need to throw the bones of your mother over your shoulders. And then he leaves. So don't worry. They figured it out. Mother was the earth and bones were stones. Oh, So okay. they walk around throwing stones over their shoulders without looking. And as the stones hit the earth, they turn into humans. Oh. The stones thrown by Deucalion become handsome men, and those thrown by Pyrrha become fair women. Um, so it was thus that those two survivors of the Great Flood repopulated the earth. But don't worry, they didn't have to do it incestuously. Right. Um, and then they reigned over them as king and queen. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of similarities there, but no doves. No birds whatsoever. Not yeah. even a vulture or a raven. Yeah, strange. Swallow. Yes. So then Hindu. Okay. Hindu mythology is next. This one starts when a demon 
Hayagriva steals a sacred book from Brahma. And the whole human race becomes corrupt, except for the seven sages, and especially Satyavrata, who is also called Manu. And I'm just going to refer to him as that because it's much easier to say. Sure. Uh, reasonable. And Manu pretty much just means like the ancestor of all humans. Okay. That's what that word means, yeah. Um, he was the prince of the maritime region. So one day he was bathing in the river and he's visited by a fish who begs him for protection from all these bigger fishes. And in return, the fish says, I will save you, Manu, if you just protect me. So Manu keeps the fish safe and transfers it to larger and larger waters as it grew bigger and eventually takes it to the ocean. And that's when he realizes the fish is actually the god Vishnu, the lord of the universe. So Vishnu tells him in seven days, all the corrupt creatures will be destroyed by a flood and Manu would be saved if he just gets on this boat. Okay. So... He was told to take aboard medicinal herbs and foods and the seven sages and their wives and pairs of brute animals. Okay. After seven days, the ocean, you know, floods and the rain begins. So during the flood, Vishnu ties the boat to himself, still in fish form. Apparently with a horn. It says he ties the boat to his horn. I don't know where the horns on a fish are, but... Near the front? He's a god, so he can look like any kind of fish he wants. Yeah. Um, he pulls... The boat to the safety of a mountain. Good call. <laughs> right? So then when the waters subside, Vishnu slays the demon who stole the holy books and communicates the contents of the holy scriptures to Manu. Kind of like a Moses moment here. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, Manu makes offerings to the gods of clarified butter, sour milk, whey, and curds. From these, a woman arose calling herself Manu's daughter, and they became the ancestors of a new race. I would say incest does feature a lot in these stories, probably because yeah. how else are you going to do it when you're the only two humans around? It's like an Adam and Eve thing. If they yeah. were really the first two humans, then there's a lot of incest, right? So. It's, it's the only only mechanism at that point, if there's just no other options. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about the Buddhist story. Great. Um, Pronunciation is going to be an issue. I'm going to make you try to read this, uh, just for just okay. because I'm sick of being the only one who has to mispronounce everything. Okay. So, the Buddhists have an elaborate flood story called this. You can read that. Um, okay. Samuda Benija Jakarta. Perfect first time. <laughs> we'll never know. That's right. That makes you feel better. We're never going to have to be... Someone can correct us if you want. I'd be amenable to yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Um, so, in an Indian village, there lived a thousand families of dishonest carpenters. Lots and lots of dishonest carpenters. But just but just dishonest carpenters. Uh-huh. Okay. These carpenters would tell people that they could build anything from houses to chairs, but then they would take the money and never do any work. But people would be able to find where they're at because they're all in the same village. Why do you try to make sense I'm, of myths? I'm not. I take it all back. Like all the other myths before now made sense. Yeah. Okay. So because of this, they were not su- surprisingly despised and uh, they needed to find a new place to live. Okay. They built a ship and sailed until they found a beautiful island. The island was populated by, well, populated, there's one dude. On this island was a man who'd been shipwrecked. Okay. The man told them food was plentiful, this island was super comfortable, and the carpenters could stay. But the only catch was that this island was haunted. Ooh. Yeah. 
So the spirits that were haunting the island only had one rule, which was that every time a human needed to uh, defecate or urinate, they needed to dig a hole and cover it up when they were finished because the spirits wanted to keep this island clean. Okay. Okay. The carpenters love the island, and they threw a big party to celebrate. Uh-oh. They were drunk on fermented sugar cane. And, uh, you know, I guess you can probably guess what happened, which is that while drunk, they did not follow this rule of cleaning up after themselves. The spirits grow furious and decide to flood the island with a giant wave on the full moon. But they didn't want to kill the carpenters for some reason. They just wanted them gone. Okay. So one spirit becomes a ball of light in the sky and tells the people because of their carelessness the island's going to be flooded so they should flee. Another spirit was more angry, though. He appears in the sky announcing that the previous warning about a flood was just a joke. There's nothing to worry about. You should keep partying and stay here. So these 1,000 carpenter families were ruled by two men, who one of which was very wise and the other was very foolish. Okay. The foolish carpenter believed the spirit that said it was a joke, and he said they should all stay. And the smart carpenter told people to build a ship, because what if they're not joking? Maybe we should at least have a ship built. Right. Contingency yeah. plan. Yeah. So the wise men built a ship, and the foolish men got more drunk, and then on the day of the full moon, a giant wave came and flooded the whole island. The wise men set sails with his people, and the foolish men and his people all died. Mm-hmm. So this is a bit of a different type of story. It is not about a worldwide flood. It's just about one island. Sure. But it had some of the same elements, you know, yeah. some godly vengeance and such things. Well, and, and uh, foretelling of it going to happen to someone so they had a By chance God. to repair. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. there's some of those elements, but I thought that one was a little... Just wanted to throw in something different for you. Okay. So I'm going to talk about flood myths of Southeast Asia because... Virtually every ethnic group in mainland Southeast Asia has myths of a great flood that leaves only two survivors to repopulate humanity. Okay. And then, like, from those two ancestors, all the ethnic groups of the region are created. They tend to all have this story. Um, The survivors are typically a brother and sister. Okay. Sometimes a woman and a dog. Which gets weird. Yeah. And then this, their union produces a gourd or a gourd-shaped lump of flesh. Sometimes the gourd is evolved in a different way, but there's always a gourd. Um, and then that's, yeah, the source of their various ethnic groups. It's kind of a... Oh, okay. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, you're throwing me a little bit for a loop there, but that's fine. Well, this is why I decided to include a different type of Chinese flood myth than the one that I had alluded to earlier because I wanted to tell one of the gourd ones. Okay. So I'm just going to give you two examples from Southeast Asia, one from China and one from Vietnam. And of course, just remember that China, Vietnam, like there's many, 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 many different ethnic groups and tribes in these areas. So this is just one of many stories having to do, just like every thing I've been telling you. There's not one story from these regions. I just don't have time to do all of them. So here's an example from China. After death came into the world as a result of a macaque's curse, 
Sky and Earth longed for human souls and bones. And that's how the flood began. Yeah. Okay. An orphaned brother and sister lived in poverty in a village. A pair of golden birds flew down to them one day and warned them that a huge wave is going to flood the earth and told them to take shelter in a gourd and don't come out until they hear the birds again. So the kids warned their neighbors, but no one believed them. They sawed off the top of a gourd and got inside of it. For 99 days, there was no wind or rain and the earth became very dry. And then the rain started and the flood washed everything away. The brother and sister occasionally heard the gourd bumping against the bottom of heaven. Okay. Very high flood waters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So after a long time waiting, they heard the birds calling and they left the gourd and they found they had landed on top of a mountain. Right. And the flood had receded. But now there were nine suns and seven moons in the sky. And they Mm. scorched the earth during the day. The two golden birds returned with a golden hammer and silver tongs and told the children how to use them to get the Dragon King's bow and arrows. Cool. Yeah. So they go to the Dragon Pond and they hit the reef home of the Dragon King with the hammer, which made such a big noise. The Dragon King sent his servants to investigate and his servants were types of fish. Okay. The children grabbed the fish with the tongs and threw them out onto the bank. And then the Dragon King was like, what the heck? I better go investigate because my servants aren't coming back to tell me what's going on. And uh, they somehow caught him with the tongs as well. I don't know how small this dragon was, but uh, he had to give them his bow and arrow to get free. Okay. And then the brother and sister took the bow and arrow to shoot down all but the brightest one sun and one moon. Pick the best one. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. They went searching for other people. They found nobody, and the golden birds appeared again and told them they had to get married. They refused, but the birds told them it was the will of the heavens. The sister then gives birth to six sons and six daughters, and the children all traveled different directions and became the ancestors of the different races. That's, you know, the story, and there's so many more stories like that where there's slight differentiations, like then they give birth to a gourd, and the brother cuts up the pieces of gourd it's turned into people, or they give birth to a deformed lump of flesh that's actually a child and the brother cuts that up and those pieces turn into people or their sister refuses to marry over and over and different signs from the heaven are sent to her that she should get married to him you know sure there's variations but that's you know kind of an interesting interesting twist Mm -hmm. um so the story from vietnam is slightly similar okay uh so chang lo ko built a house and on the roof was banana leaves the Thunder Chief wanted to destroy the house. I don't know why. Well, I guess why not? Yeah, so he transforms himself into a rooster and lands on it. But the banana leaves are very slippery. So he falls off the roof and Chang puts him in a cage. Ooh. Chang plans to slaughter him for a party, the, the rooster. And so he goes off to buy some wine. But while he's away, Chang's son sees that there's a man in the cage. And he's like, what? Hmm. He goes to investigate, and the Thunder Chief asks him for a drink of water, so the boy gets it for him. Which, of course, means the Thunder Chief gets his strength back and escapes from the cage. And he's very grateful to this boy, so he gives him a tooth and tells him to plant it, and it would grow into a gourd in seven days, and then he should hide inside the gourd. Sure. That tooth, Thunder God tooth 
gourd thing is also a common theme in these Southeast Asian stories. Yeah. So on the seventh day, the gourd matures, heavy rain begins, the boy and his sister get into the gourd and seal the opening with beeswax. They brought food and a pair of each species of domestic animal. This must be a very, very big yeah. squash. Yeah. So Chang Loko was aware of the Thunder Chief's vengeance and builds a raft and sails on the flood to the gate of heaven to fight the Thunder Chief. But he crashes into a mountain and dies. Oh, too bad for him. Yeah. The gourd carrying the siblings lands on Conlon Mountain. Okay. Here's literally always a mountain. Each of them tries to look for a spouse, but all the other people have died. So one day the boy meets Tortoise, which tells him to marry his sister. And he got mad and threw a stone at the tortoise, breaking its shell. Ooh, ooh. The tortoise, that's okay, immediately was fine, except he still had a mark where the shell was broken. Like, he, like, fixes himself, but still has a mark. Okay. Later, a bamboo told the boy the same thing. I guess, like, a stick of bamboo? I don't know. A bamboo or is what the myth or says. Okay. Nope. He cuts the bamboo into pieces. Hmm, what? The bamboo instantly regenerates, but with marks where it had been cut. Um, so... Seeing these omens that these things just heal themselves supernaturally, the boy gives in and tells his sister that they should get married, but the sister refuses. Mm. They then that night sleep on opposite sides of a stream. Two trees grow from their bellies as they sleep and entangle themselves together. Three years, three months, and three days later, she gives birth to a gourd. The boy told her to cut it open and plant the seeds, which grew into people. She began planting in the lowlands and just had only a few seeds left by the time she reached the uplands, which is why the population is greater in the plains. Okay. In Vienna. All right. You know. Yeah. That is why. Very cool. Yeah. So you can see, again, there's a similar theme. And in this one, you see what I was talking about with the reluctance to be incestuous. But Right. But they're the last two people, so... Yeah, yeah. and the gods are giving you permission. Okay, we're going to change course now and go over to Lithuania. Okay. Because this one's kind of interesting. So, I'm going to say these wrong too, but that's okay. So, from his heavenly window, the supreme god Pramzimus saw nothing but war and injustice among mankind. And so, he sends two giants, um, Wandu and Weyas, water and wind, to destroy the earth. Um, after 20 days and nights, pretty much nothing was left. And Zemus looks out the window again and he's like, okay, this is going pretty well. And throws a nutshell out his heavenly window because he's eating nuts at the time. Okay. So one nutshell, it lands on the peak of the tallest mountain where there were still a few people and animals left that had tried to escape the, the flooding. So the people and animals that were on that mountaintop climbed into the nutshell and survived the flood by floating in it. Okay. Um, Pramzimus was like, that's fine with me. Everyone else is dead. I'll stop the flooding now. And then the people disperse, except for one elderly couple who stayed where they landed. And uh, to comfort them, Pramzimus sends a rainbow and advises them to jump over the bones of the earth nine times. Rocks. I don't know this time. Okay. And they apparently did this, so I guess they they knew. And upspring nine other couples from which the nine Lithuanian tribes descended. Cool. 
Yeah. So again, a rainbow in a completely different civilization. And in this one, they didn't necessarily build themselves a boat or an ark, but no, were provided like an one. Accident. But, but at the same time, like very similar still. Mm-hmm. And there was a mountain. Yeah. There's always a mountain. Transylvania. Okay. Which I, I haven't talked about as much in mythology yet. So no. let's talk about Transylvania. So in Transylvania, men once lived forever and knew no troubles. Okay. The earth brought forth fine fruits and flesh grew on trees and milk and wine flowed in the rivers. Then one day an old man came to the country and asked for a night's lodging, which a couple gave them in their cottage. When he left the next day, he said he would return in nine days. He gave the host a small fish and said he would reward the host if he did not eat the fish, but did return it in the nine days to him. Sure. The wife thought the fish must be exceptionally good to eat. And even though the husband tried to make her swear not to eat it, she yielded to her temptation and cooked the fish and ate it after only two days. She was immediately struck dead by lightning and it began Ouch. to rain. This one's giving me Adam and Eve. Yeah. Apple vibes, but those damn women. They always just eat everything. Yeah. So the river started to overflow. On the ninth day, the old man returned, and he told the host that all living things are going to be drowned, but he didn't blame the man. It wasn't his fault. So he could be saved. He told the host to take a wife. Obviously a new one. A new new one? one. Yeah. Obviously. The other one's dead. So I guess just grab any old lady to be your new wife, and gather the rest of his kinfolk, build a boat, and save the animals and seeds of the trees and the herbs. Okay. So the man did all of this. It rained a year. Water covered everything. And then after the year, the water receded. All the people and animals disembarked. And now everything sucked because they had to work for a living and sickness and death appeared. Um, they multiplied slowly so that many thousands of years passed before people were as numerous as they were before the flood. Okay. This one has a less happy ending than, yeah. than most of the other ones. And what I noticed about that one is they didn't seem to end up on a mountaintop. No, they didn't which, mention it. Just, just I wonder if I found point. another version, if they would say a mountaintop. Maybe. Yeah. wonder. You know how it is with mythology. I do. Um, this is just a little thing I'll mention, Norse mythology, because they don't really have necessarily, um, like, the same type of flood mythology, but I did want to mention them because they have that kind of creation story out of the, the primeval water type of, okay. type of thing, right? So... Um, when Odin and his brothers, uh, Vili and Ve, kill the giant Ymir, uh, the blood pours from the body and floods the earth. So blood floods the earth, I guess. But uh, the single frost giant Berglamir and his wife made an ark and were saved and repopulated the earth. Okay. So, you know, blood, blood flood? Yeah. I mean... I'm sure it's very similar. It's not absent from North mythology is all I'm trying to get at here. Um, I do want to talk about, to end this off, um, indigenous groups. Okay. Because, I mean, as you'll probably remember, if you listen to our fire uh, episodes, uh, their mythology tends to be centered around animals. Yeah. And that type of thing. Uh, And it'll be a little different than the stuff we've, we've mentioned so far. Cool. The Australia... Myth I found is uh, very, very different. This has nothing to do with any of the other flood myths we've talked about. So that'll be fun. So an actual departure from 
a lot of the similarities that we've had. 100%. Okay, cool. So this one's from Southeast Australia because, again, again, there's so many indigenous groups, so many different myths. They're not all the same. <laughs> right. So the animals and birds and reptiles became overpopulated. And they held a conference to decide what to do. Okay. The kangaroo and the eagle hawk and the joanna were the chiefs of the three animal groups. And their advisors were the koala and the crow and the tiger snake. Uh, so they argue and argue, and they make no progress in a solution. So the frilled lizards decide to act on their own. You see, the frilled lizards have the knowledge of how to make rain. Um, and they spread the word to all their family to perform the rain ceremony during the week before the new moon. And by doing this, they were hoping to destroy the platypus family. Ooh. Because the platypus family far outnumbered any of the others. So they do this ceremony repeatedly. A great storm comes, floods the whole land. The frilled lizards had shelters on the mountains and some animals managed to make their way up there. But nearly all life was destroyed in this flood. So when the flood ends, the sun shines again. The kangaroo calls all the animals together to discover how the platypus family had fared, but they couldn't find a single living platypus. Oh. Three years later, the cormorant told the emu that he had seen a platypus beak impression by the river. But he didn't see a platypus. Because of the flood, the platypuses had decided that the animals and birds and reptiles were their enemies. And they only moved about at night. Okay. The animals organized a search party, and Carpet Snake eventually found a platypus home and reported its location to the others. So they'd just been in hiding? Oh, yes. Okay. So they didn't trust the other animals. Of course. That makes sense. So Kangaroo summoned all the tribes together, and they have to mention here specifically even the insect tribe. Frilled Lizard was ejected for doing mischief, and now he has turned ugly because of the hate he holds. Okay. So now you know why Frilled Lizards are ugly, even though I think they're pretty cool. But The animals and the birds found that they were both related to the platypus family, which is not oh. true, but I think the beak thing. Uh, I was going to say, like, I can see the lines of thinking there, but... Yeah, I could. In ancient peoples, yeah. Um, even the reptiles found some relationships, and everyone agreed the platypuses were an old race. Mm-hmm. I don't really... Mm-hmm. Some of this stuff seems random, to be honest, that's kind of in this story, but... So Carpet Snake goes to the platypuses and invites them to the assembly. They came, and everyone was happy that they came. Kangaroo offered Platypus his choice of the daughter of any of them. Platypus learned that Emu had changed its totem so that the Platypus and Emu families could marry. And this is the part I don't understand. It says, This made Platypus decide it didn't want to be part of any of their families. I don't know. Like, Emu was trying too hard? I don't know. Sure. Like, not playing hard to get, so it's too easy, and that's a turnoff? No, so angry. Okay. And now Emu got angry, though. The rejection. Well, that yeah. part I understand. And Kangaroo suggested the platypus leave silently at night, which they did. And when they did leave, they met a bandicoot along the way, hmm. who invited the platypus to live with them. So the platypus married the bandicoot daughters and lived happily. And here's another random thing. Water rats got jealous and fought them, but were defeated. Platypuses have tried to be separate from the animal and bird tribes ever since. Okay. But not entirely successfully, is how the story ends. Cool. So yeah, that one's a little different. Yeah, it took twists and turns I wasn't expecting, but I enjoyed that one. Right. Yeah. So, um, again, there is so many different... North American indigenous tribes. Yeah. I wasn't sure what to pick. So I ended up going with two different stories from Inuit mythology. Okay. 
Um, so here's the first one. Raven had put a woman under the world to govern the tides. And at one point, he decides he wants to see the undersea world. So he told the woman to raise the water so he could see undersea with, without getting wet. He wants the waters to be raised up. Even, you know, like the bottom of the water. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I understand what you're saying. So he told her to raise the ocean slowly so that people would have time to get in their boats. Okay. Yeah. So as the waters rose, bears and other animals were driven to the mountaintops. And many of them swam out to the people's canoes. Some people had taken dogs in their canoes and the dogs kept the bears away. Because they didn't want the bears. I don't think so. I guess bears are pretty ferocious. Yeah. So okay. some people landed on the tops of mountains and built dams around them to keep out the water. Um, uprooted trees, devil fish, and other strange creatures washed past them. I don't really know oh, what devil fish Me neither. When the waters ebbed, the survivors followed the tide down the mountains, but the trees were all gone, and the people didn't have any firewood, so they died of the cold. Oh, that's too bad. When Raven returned, he saw fish lying high on the land, and he commanded them to turn to stone. And then when he saw people coming down the mountain, he turned them to stone too. When all yep. mankind had been destroyed, he... Created them anew out of leaves, and that's why so many people die during the fall. The end. So. <laughs> Do not ask me to explain. I have no, no idea. but the, the turning them to stone part made me think that, like that was like a, a, a fossil origins myth almost. I don't know. People? Uh, that part I don't, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, that one was, I just wanted to include it because I thought it was ridiculous and I have no idea what was going on the whole time. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Perfect. I shouldn't be the only one who's confused. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can all join in on that one now. Okay. So I thought I'd include um, this next one as an example of an earth diver Earth story. diver. Yeah, that thing I talked about in the introduction that you've clearly already forgotten about. Yeah, it was too long ago remember, for me. Remember the subset of primeval water yes. mythology, the earth diver myths? Okay. Okie dokie. So Kunyan, which means wise man, foresaw that there was going to be... A flood, probably. So he builds a great raft, and he joins a bunch of logs together with roots, and he tells the other people, but they all laughed at him. Which, again, is also a common theme in these flood myths. They try to warn people and get laughed at. Yeah. Um, and the people said, well, we're just going to climb trees if it floods. Hmm. You're being ridiculous. So then a great flood came, and the water rose higher than any of the trees and drowned all the people but the wise man and his family. And as he floated, he gathered pairs of all the animals and birds he met. The earth disappeared under the water, and for a long time, no one thought to look for the earth. Then the muskrat dived into the water looking for the bottom, but he couldn't find it. See, this isn't one where the muskrat's the the victorious animal. Uh, The second time the muskrat dived, he smelled the earth, but he still couldn't reach it. So next, beaver dived. And he reappeared unconscious. But he was holding a little bit of mud. Okay. Okay. The wise man placed the mud on the water and breathed on it, which made it grow. He continued to breathe on it, making it larger and larger. And then he put fox on the island. Fox ran around the island in just a day. So it's still too small to be the earth. And the fox then ran around the island six times. By the seventh time, the land grew to as large as it was before the flood. And the animal is disembarked, followed by the wise man and his wife, who was also his sister, it says. Okay. And their son. They repeopled the land. But the floodwaters were still too high, so to lower them, the bittern, which is a bird, swallows all the floodwaters. But now there is too little water on the earth. 
So the plover scratches the stomach of the bittern and the waters float out into rivers and lakes. The end. Okay. Sure. Even even the Inuit went with the incestuous story. Yeah, it is it is kind of common. Yeah. Yeah. At least that it's funny, the Greeks are like the least incestuous. They were cousins. Everything else they're siblings. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) the last story I'll share is the the Aztec story. Um, so in the Aztec story, uh, Tichla Kuan, who's a god, warns a man named Note and his wife Nina of a coming flood. So Nata and Nina, uh, hollow out a cypress tree. And Tichla Kahuan sealed himself inside the cypress tree. And the god says, you can only eat one ear of maize each. And here's where the story differs. From other similar stories. The earth is flooded, but the people aren't killed. Instead, everyone's turned okay. into a fish. Sure. And after the flood, Nata and Nina disobey Tichlakuhan, and they don't eat maize, they eat a fish. Oh. So then Tichlakuhan turns them into dogs. So the story actually ends with the world starting all over again. The gods are just going to eventually create humans again. But there's this time they started with lots and lots of fish and a couple of dogs. Okay. Cool. Gotta, gotta spice it up. Gotta, gotta end with uh, something different, you know? Yeah. Um, and not that I'm surprised that indigenous stories might differ from some of the other cultures where there might have been more contact between those civilizations at well, some point. Yeah, I mean, we. The first set all the way through Europe, Africa, you know, Indo-Asia. I mean, there's there's pretty accessible land routes or at least, you know, uh, easy shipping routes or like boat routes. You know, you get down to Australia, that's, you have to go through a lot of Oceania islands that's harder to get to. And then, the, you know, the quote unquote new world. North America is fairly far detached from them. I'm not surprised that there is a uh, cohesion of story well, in the right. first set. And we've, you know, established that indigenous peoples had more of the pagan, animal-based, nature-based religions. And in the Mediterranean era, area, there was, you know, the gods that evolved to share a lot of similar traits and eventually... You know, we get to Christianity with the with the monotheistic religion, and yet it's still not that different of a story. Mm-hmm. There's just this time only one God destroying, you know, everything and all of that. And anyways, so I just really like doing episodes kind of like this because you can see that uh, it's going to sound hokey, but you know that we are all connected, and and it's been a very long time since people were very separate in their understandings of the world. There is a very common roots to a lot of these things, common themes, as you saw, mountains and rainbows and incest. Yeah. And birds. <laughs> a lot of them do have birds. Yeah. Apparently, the platypus is also a bird. I'm not going to disagree and just leave science out of it. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, next episode, if you're a little bit interested in parasites, like I sure am, I'm a lot interested in them. I'm going to be talking about the parasite, uh, well, 
talking about the illness, toxoplasmosis, caused by a parasite, and I think it's going to be pretty cool. So I would tune in if I was you, because I like parasites. Excellent. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Bye.